Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Hey, Chris. Your name, Chris? You calling me? Your name, Christopher Emanuel Bellastero. Yes, it is. We want to speak to you. We're police officers. What about? We'd like you to come down to the precinct and help us out. I'm just getting home. I'd like to tell my wife if I'm going anyplace. Well, you better come along and tell her later. Where is it? 110th precinct. Won't take long. Shouldn't take long. I'd like to tell my wife. It's all right, Chris. Just a routine matter. Down to the precinct, we'll tell you about it. Hi everybody, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. And I'm Jason. So welcome to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. You know how this works is that we watch movies separately and talk about them on the show for the first time. But today we have a special guest. We are joined by Jason Israelowitz, author of Nothing to Fear, Alfred Hitchcock and the Wrong Man, which was just published. We're going to be talking about Hitchcock's 1956 film, The Wrong Man, often overlooked, we think unfairly because we think it's a terrific film. I've read Jason's book, which is a terrific, terrific overview of bad police work, mistaken identity, and, and the history of that and how Hitchcock kind of dramatized that idea. It's a great book. You could listen to another conversation on the New Books Network about that, but we're going to talk about the film as a film today. So Jason, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. So in part one, as you know, you listeners know, we always talk about our overall take on the film, like our, our big thing. So Jason, why don't you go first? What What is it about this film that that speaks to you, that makes you recommend it to other people? Sure. Well, I think this is really a devastating account of a miscarriage of justice and an innocent family that suffered as a result of a very fallible criminal justice system. I guess first, at one level, it's just a very effective retelling of an extraordinary true story. Um, Hitchcock recognized the inherent drama of depicting the ordeal that Manny Balistrero and his wife Rose went through. And as a result, um, he realized he didn't need to embellish it. You know, he didn't add a lot of the Hitchcock trademarks of, you know, set pieces and suspense and all that. And instead, you get a very kind of uh, realistic rendering of what these two people and their family went through. And I find it to be very powerful. Um, at the same time, even though there's no um, narrative embellishment, you know, in terms of the facts, you do get Hitchcock's usual artistry and his um, incredible ability to engage in visual storytelling. And one of the things he had set out to do here was to show this experience from Manny Balistrero's perspective. 
So there's a lot of subjective camera work that I think is really interesting and, and groundbreaking at the time to the point where, you know, uh, current filmmakers like Martin Scorsese have cited this film as very influential in, in their work. And then I guess for the third element, I would just add that, you know, you have these two, what I think is two amazing performances by Henry Fonda and Vera Miles. You know, for Fonda here, we have this actor who is known for his ability to project basic decency and honesty. And yet in other movies, he could be very fiery, right? And very emotional and very eloquent. And here he committed to a, a very um, naturalistic performance, one where he really disappears into the character of Manny Balistrero. And I think that's critical to one of the film's themes, which is that, you know, when the criminal justice system is set in motion against you as an innocent person, it's just a har harrowing and, um, you know, entirely crippling experience and, and one that leaves you helpless and powerless. And I think Fonda does a brilliant job of capturing that. And meanwhile, um, Vera Miles, for her part, you know, she was a relative unknown at the time. And, you know, Hitchcock had ambitions of her becoming the next Grace Kelly. He, he had said that. And yet, you know, despite those ambitions, she delivers a very kind of raw performance here in a way that I thought was, you know, pretty brave at the time. You really get a look at someone who has a, a, a pretty um, uh, disturbing emotional breakdown as a result of this, you know, horrible situation that that she and her family are being put through. So for these and many other reasons, I think it, it is, as you said, Dan, a very underrated film and one that deserves a lot of uh, a lot more attention than it's gotten in the past. Hmm. How about you, Mike? What was your take? Yeah, it's, I think the movie's kind of been relegated to um it, i mean they didn't have it at the time but it feels like a, more of a direct to dvd uh kind of reception that it certainly doesn't deserve uh and i think the movie dramatizes really well the fallibility of innocent until proven guilty because the the rose subplot whether it's take i mean that's obviously taken from life but there are certain things that you can't give restitution for right so they they no they cannot put you back in time to the point before they interrupted your life, your your life remains interrupted, and it's it's almost like the justice system has done him a favor at the end of the movie when they decide to leave him alone. But it's it's too late. So so what can you do? And I I think, um, you know, Jason was talking about the the way that they pick up on Manny's subjectivity in the movie. I I think it's really nicely dramatized how bereft he is. Uh, at the at the end of the movie when they said you know everybody shakes his hand and says okay you're free to go uh but but you're not they've altered his reality and so he's not free to go back it that they pick him up literally right outside his door which is a nice uh, hitchcock uh is a nice hitchcock shot where you, the the steps lead up to the door and he's he's just two feet away from it but they can't drop you off that close they they drop you off necessarily somewhere else even if you go back to the same physical location yeah, I love what Jason just said about how it's realistic, right? Because of course it's it's Hitchcock uses the same plot device in films that are completely unrealistic, like we talked about North by Northwest or the 39 Steps. And those are comic versions of, of the same kind of thing. But a phrase that Mike and I use sometimes in these episodes is we say, well, what would happen if you turned up the consequences meter just a little bit, right? So this is, well, what if all of a sudden you're not you're not Cary Grant, you're just Manny Balistrero, and you're not Robert Dunat out on the moors of Scotland. Um, handcuffed to handcuffed to your your leading lady, and you're you're just this musician, and all of a sudden the same thing happens. But we're going to turn up the consequences meter and, and watch what goes on. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that really enhances your empathy as you're watching the yeah. movie in that, you know, it's not, um, you know, uh, Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart, Henry Fonda in this really um, natural performance of someone you can really relate to. Yeah. I mean, Andy Balistrero is someone and we, we know that kind of person a lot of us do in real life. And it's it's um, incredibly disturbing to see someone who really didn't. In, and this is true in real life as well in the movie. He really didn't have any impulse whatsoever that would ever lead him to the criminal element. And yet here he is swept up in this in this tragedy and being accused by the state of being a criminal. That's all right. I, I asked Dan once um, why he liked No Country for Old Men so much. And uh, he said, I don't, I don't think this was in our episode on it. There's a scene where the sheriff gets in totally defeated. And in any other movie, he would beat the steering wheel or break down and cry. And he just sits down and starts his car and drives away. And I think that that's, that's why audiences love Manny. There's a very simple heroism in just keeping it together until every va- other valve pops, including on his wife's brain. And that's what's so funny is that the Vera Miles plot is, is, and Jason talks about this in his book, and maybe Jason, you could elaborate on this. The first time you see the wrong man, all of a sudden, it's almost like you've you've channel surfed into a different movie. And you're like, well, wait a minute, I was watching this crime kind of quasi police procedural. And now this whole thing is going on with, with Rose. And that might be hard for some audiences to take in at first because they almost feel like, wait a minute, I sat down for an Alfred Hitchcock movie. And this is like, you know, a Douglas Sirk movie or something else like that. So what do you make of the whole Rose plot other than the fact that it really happened? Yeah, I mean, Hitchcock really did seem fascinated by that part of the story. In fact, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, there were two elements of this real story that were right up Hitchcock's alley. The innocent man falsely accused, which, of course, he had covered so many times in other films. And then the, the female protagonist in psychological duress, which he had covered as well. And I think that, um, you know, when you look back at the correspondence um, between Hitchcock and the screenwriter, you can see that he very consciously saw the movie as shifting about midway through from Manny's story and the story of, you know, his ordeal in the criminal justice system to to Rose's story and her psychological breakdown. Which, you know, I think when you first see the movie, you think, oh, this kind of feels like it may be somewhat abrupt, but it's very true to life. I mean, Rose went from initially meeting with the lawyer and Manny and helping out in the development of the defense to starting to be consumed by this kind of irrational sense of guilt that she had been responsible for Manny's, you know, false arrest. And it happened very quickly. And, you know, Manny's arrest was uh, in mid-January. And by the end of February, Rose was um, moved to a sanitarium. And I think Hitchcock really did see this um, not only as an inherently compelling part of the drama, but I also think it allowed him to cover something that was very rare at the time, which is he paid attention to the family trauma from false arrest. And the idea that this is not just, you know, obviously it was devastating for Manny individually, but it's also devastating for his entire family. And it was very unusual for a film of this era to, to cover that theme. Yeah. In your, in your book, you talk about, maybe you could talk about this before we move on to part two. You interviewed Manny's son about the ordeal. I did. Uh, one of his two sons, Greg, who was only five at the time of the events depicted in the film, but did have some memories of it. And one of the things that Greg was very helpful about was he filled me in in his family's history, including um, Rose's 
of personal history. And one of the things you don't really get a, a, a great sense of from the film, although they hint at it, is that Rose had experienced a series of traumas in her life before this particular ordeal depicted in the film. Um, she uh, had lost her mother. Her mother died of pneumonia when Rose was only a freshman in high school and Rose had to drop out of high school and help you know, care for the family at that point. Her, her young brother, um, who was, I think it was in his early 30s, died in a horrible car crash in Brooklyn. And then um, she lost a baby right after childbirth uh, in between having Robert, the older son, and Greg. And, and Greg told me he himself had almost died of pneumonia. So Rose had this series of, of traumas and what, what Greg referred to as a fragile foundation in life so that it was uh, kind of triggering all her anxiety about being separated and have, have, about the potential you know, breakdown of her family um, when Manny was arrested. And um, you know, she, she just couldn't, um, she just retreated is the way Greg put it. She retreated into a state of, of really complete depression. All right, in part two, we'll talk about our favorite moments. So welcome back. As you know, part two, we like to talk about our favorite moments or moments we think reflect the film as a whole. It's funny you were just talking about Vera Miles because mine is the moment where she says to him, have you prayed? Because we see her trying to hang on to something and watching this film reminded me very much of watching Charlie Chaplin go through the gears, you know, in modern times is that she finds it that the universe works in this way that's just going to like swallow them all up. But it's, 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 you know, before we talked about North but Northwest, you know, this is also a film that makes you think about The Fugitive, both with, you know, the TV show and the film. But of course, you know, everything gets put right. I, I'm not the guy, the one-armed man is like, it's. Every, but even though we'll talk about this later, everything's put right. It, you can't put Vera Miles back to the way she was. And that's what you said before about making restitution. Yes. And, and, and it really is uh, a faithful rendering of what happened there, because the truth is that um, I think Mike said eloquently that, you know, the criminal justice system just is not able to restore these people to the yeah. way their lives were beforehand. And boy, was that true in this case, because in addition to the, the trauma that Manny went through, Rose remained at a sanitarium for more than two years yeah. um, after Manny was exonerated. And of course, this experience stayed with her for the rest of her life to the point where even though she did progress in her recovery, she could never revisit the events depicted in the film. And, and Greg told me um, that she never could see the film. It was too much of a painful experience for her. Mike, what was your moment? Uh, my moment is the first time they make Manny do that exercise where he goes in the liquor store and he's got to walk to the back and, and turn around. Uh, th that is the film in miniature. If you, if you showed somebody one scene from the movie, I think, and said, this is the movie, because, you know, they say an innocent man has nothing to fear, but clearly for Manny walking up and down the store, that's not true. You know, and, the, and it's very clear to see that the free man is the policeman who's who's driving the car. They And they make they tell him exactly what to do to walk up and down. And then, of course, as a viewer, you think, OK, here it comes again. Here's another one of those scenes like in the insurance office. And then the other police guy gets in the car and they go, all right, we're going to hit one more joint like Right. Because you're you're with yeah. Manny and you think, OK, what they say and you, you don't get to, you don't get to know. And uh, that is for me, that's that's the movie in miniature, because, again, the, there's no way to erase that experience. It's a very it's a debasing experience. And and the police say, well, OK, if you're if you're innocent, everything's going to be fine. We just want them to negatively identify you. But why should you have to walk up and down at all? 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. That that scene is is one of my favorites as well. Um, really depicting uh, accurately the types of procedures that police were using at the time. That one being what we call a show up, which is the display of the suspect before an eyewitness alone. But um, in particular, um, I think you've hit the nail on the head there because there's something in the way that Hitchcock depicts that that is very dehumanizing and almost as if Manny is kind of in a cage, you know, pacing back and forth before this proprietor. And again, um, while the movie compresses some of the events, it's pretty faithful to what happened. My understanding is that Manny was subjected to this same procedure in, in roughly eight or nine different establishments in Jackson Heights at the time. Um, the other thing that's, I think, really interesting about that scene, apart from the, the, the dramatic power of it, it has, is that it was actually filmed at the actual liquor store where the real Manny Balistrero was subjected to one of those show-ups uh, in Jackson Heights. And that's part of you know, um, Hitchcock's commitment to trying to invest the film with a great deal of authenticity. Part of that was he shot a lot of these events in the actual locations where, the, where they unfolded. And that, that liquor store was really one of the liquor stores that had been held up. You know, the first time you see that scene, Mike, is that one of the first things you might think of is, wait a minute, why doesn't he, what, why, why doesn't he call his attorney? Why, why is he going along with this? Why doesn't he say, I'm not doing anything until my lawyer gets here? But, but it's funny, like, not only do you have to imagine what it's like to be Manny, you have to imagine a time pre Miranda versus Arizona, because this movie is 10 years before Miranda. And we take the Miranda rights for granted. Even if you've been raised by watching movies, that's TV shows. That's how you learn them. But we take that as such, we don't even think about it. Like, we do, but, but he's trying to do the right thing. And he's kind of like, so now you might, we, a viewer today might say, you know, hasn't this guy taken a class in phys- in uh, civics? But no, that's a whole other world, right? So Jason, what was, what was your moment? Well, it's hard for me to choose because, you know, I've seen this movie at least 25 times and love many, many of the scenes. But the one I'm going to go with is during the courtroom sequence, when Manny is identified in the courtroom by one of the eyewitnesses for the first time. And and here again, we have Hitchcock depicting something that um, was based in reality. I mean, in the actual trial transcript, what happened here was the first eyewitness, a woman in Constance Ello, was asked to get off the stand and walk over to to the person in the courtroom whom she understood to be the holdup man. And this was a ritual that prosecutors actually used at the time. It was kind of an element of theatrics and kind of was intended to convey the certainty of the eyewitness. And so in real life, what happened was this woman um, got off the stand and walked over and put her hand on Manny's shoulder. And if you read the historical accounts of this case, it was a moment of extreme anxiety for both the eyewitness and for Manny. Basically, you know, the Frank O'Connor, the lawyer for Manny, later recounts how you know Manny's hands are kind of shaking under the table in terror, and he's 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 holding on to O'Connor for support. And the eyewitness herself, who had been victimized by these holdups, albeit not by Manny, was herself terrified because she feared retribution from the person she thought was the culprit. But one, the thing I love about the way it's depicted in the movie is that Hitchcock um, tracks the eyewitness off the stand and approaching Manny, um, I guess it's from Manny's right, and you see the eyewitness walk into the frame. And as she's making the identification, the camera cuts to a close-up of her hand being put on Manny's shoulder. And during that pivotal moment, 
you know, you see her body, but you don't see her head because she's walked into a close-up, which I thought was really striking symbolism for what's going on there. Because of course, the idea is this eyewitness really isn't correctly identifying Manny. She's never really seen Manny. And in fact, it kind of speaks for the larger problem that the criminal justice system is blind to the truth of what's going on here. So I, I find that to be a very dramatic moment in the movie and one that, you know, is, is kind of unnerving. I mean, the other thing about that sequence, that scene, is that as she's approaching, she's kind of reaching out. You see her hand reaching out to put her hand on the shoulder, which is kind of a horror trope, uh, <laughs> which I think Hitchcock was playing with. Because, you know, the truth is this is a horror story from the perspective of the person who's been falsely accused. So for, for a variety of reasons, that, that scene is, is probably my, one of my favorites in the film. Okay, welcome back. So in part three, of course, we always talk about the title or the ending or the key takeaways. Probably don't have too much to say about the title. So does anyone have anything on the ending or big takeaway? Yeah, well, this ending is actually probably Hitchcock's most controversial because, you know, there's almost two endings, right? There's the scene in which, you know, Manny has been exonerated. And he's hopeful that the news of the exoneration will restore Rose to him, that, you know, she'll break out of her deep state of depression because of the good news. And he goes to see her at the sanitarium and you get this absolutely devastating scene where it's clear that Rose is is still uh, mired in this in this horrible um, depressed state. And, and Manny's just unable to connect with her and she doesn't seem to really react positively to the news that Manny has been exonerated. And I think it's actually one of the most har harrowing scenes I've ever seen in a Hitchcock film. And um, it reinforces the point that Mike was making earlier that, you know, these types of miscarriages of justice don't leave us with easy, happy endings. There isn't instant closure and there isn't just uh, pure jubilation. There is a lot of emotional and psychological baggage that lasts you know, the rest of these people's lives who have been subjected to this. Um, but where the controversy comes in is that immediately after um, the scene where we understand that Rose is going to remain in the sanitarium, the postscript, a, a title card appears, which essentially says that, you know, two years later, Rose walked out of the um, sanitarium completely cured. And um, a number of people, a number of critics have said, well, this is kind of a, a grafted on phony happy ending that was forced on Hitchcock by the studios. And it doesn't really, it's not really consistent with the rest of the film. And, you know, that was really the narrative about the ending for a long time. But um, I don't know, probably about 10 years ago, there were various scholars who were first dug into some of the correspondence. And it became pretty clear that Hitchcock himself had always conceived of that postscript as being part of the ending. And the reason was that he was very committed to the idea that this was a factual, factually accurate presentation of the events. And he, when asked about this ending later on, he said, well, we were doing the true story. Now he did kind of admit that he also wanted to give the audience some note of relief. So I do think there was some element of that but I really don't think, you know, it's fair to call this ending a sellout, um, which some critics have, have said. And I guess the only thing, other thing I would add is, I mean, if you think about the situation Hitchcock was in, Manny and Rose 
were cooperating with this production, right? They had sold their rights. They had been interviewed by the filmmaking team. And the reality was that Rose at the time this movie was made was out of the sanitarium, right? I mean, she was, she was living in Miami with Manny. She was getting on with her life. So if you think about it that way, I mean, Hitchcock really could not as a practical matter ended the film with Rose still in the sanitarium, even though thematically there's some logic to it. I mean, that in a way would have, I think it would have been unacceptable to the Ballesteros, but I think it would have been kind of a, a pretty harsh way to end the movie when we're dealing with people in real life um, and, and they had, were trying to move on with their lives. What did you two think of the ending? I thought it was that we see the wrong man idea in a lot of films. And at the end of all the wrong man movies you could think of, and there's a lot of them, you know, order gets restored usually. Like I'm going to find the right guy or I'm going to find out who the killer really is. We, or I'm an, you know, I'm a regular guy who has to become an amateur detective, but I'm going to do my stuff and I'm going to, you know, and everything is order is restored at the end. And that's sometimes very comic in a way, or sometimes it's very, at least it's very satisfying. Here, what struck me is that what's so interesting is that order is restored at the end. They find the right guy. We find we've we've been talking about that. That's so funny. They find the right guy. Order's restored. Okay, so but it, there's no. It's so. And I think the word I kept coming back to was downbeat. Like it's so downbeat. You can put all the title cards you want on the screen, but when you get done watching the wrong man, like you don't feel good. You don't feel like that was exhilarating. You don't feel like, oh, wow. Like now everything's like, you just feel like that. And I think that's, that's a great move by Hitchcock. I think he sets it up really nicely because there, there's a scene in this kind of movie, especially when you write this kind of movie or you do the architecture of this kind of movie where you're supposed to find the evidence that proves that you're right. And, right. and Manny and Rose, they go out to the place in, in new England and the, dead, yeah. and the, the guys, the guy's dead. And the, nobody can remember the logbook, and you have to talk the owners into reminding you that you played cards one night. So, it, you know, that, that that's always the scene where you find out that you're right, and it's supposed to be maddening that you can't explain that you're right. Uh, but Manny and Rose know that they're right, but they they can't prove it. Mm-hmm. And it's so I think that there, there's something about this film where it's not just the monstrous arm of the law, there's just something about the entropy of the universe that's surrounding them. That no matter how well, no matter how modestly you just want to live calmly, uh, that that it can't be allowed, right? And that, yeah, because you're supposed to find out in those kind of movies when you said you have to find out the evidence, you're supposed to uncover some vast conspiracy that you've kind of stumbled upon. So not only are you going to find the real killer, you're going to find out that like the CIA was really in on it, or you're like you're going to find this. But there's no vast conspiracy here. It's just like just like no, you're the wrong. It's just the wrong guy. Everything is against you, and nothing is against you. <laughs> which is, I mean. And I think that goes nicely with uh, Manny's version of heroism, again, is just not saying anything. He doesn't scream. He doesn't cry. He he does get upset. He hugs his children extra tight, but he doesn't. He responds with more emotional bravery than I respond, like when I can't find my keys, you know, (laughs) And and I think that that has something to do with the way that the film sets you up. And so when Rose is not recovered, when he when he tells her. Uh, that feels like a nice coda to the moment when they go to try to find the evidence and they can't find it. That that fits with the rest of the universe of the film. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the other point about the last image, which is seen right after the title card, you see from a, a long shot of a family of four walking under what seemed to be palm trees in Miami. And the title card is 
there to suggest that these are the balasuros in a happier place. But you know, you can't actually see them, right? You never actually see Fonda and Miles and the children reunited on screen. And in fact, there's a little bit of trivia about the movie, which I, I found in the research from, from other scholars who had noted this, which is those actually are not Henry Fonda and Vera Miles walking under the palm trees. They're doubles, which kind of invests that whole scene with, a, with that much more irony. But I think the fact that you never actually see an on-screen kind of entirely convincing repair of the fractures of this family um, lends support to to Dan's point that it really it it, it doesn't um, remove the the somewhat disturbing power that the ending has to show you that you know Rose is going to be permanently scarred from this whole experience. Jason, thank you so much for being on our show today. We hope everybody goes out and gets your book. Jason's book is Nothing to Fear, Alfred Hitchcock and the Wrong Man. It's a terrific, terrific read. Jason, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks to both of you. It's been my pleasure.